Welcome to Boardwalk Talk, a podcast of interviews with various people in Toronto's beach neighborhood who are doing important work and have intriguing spiritual journeys to share. My name is Jeff Nowers, a priest at St. Aidan's Anglican Church in the beach. With me today is my colleague, the Reverend Canon Lucy Reed, who has been the lead parish priest at St. Aidan's for the past 11 years. In two weeks, she will be retiring leaving St. Aidan's and moving out of Toronto. Lucy's life has taken many twists and turns from growing up in the UK to moving to Canada as an adult, living in various places across the country, working in the church and on a university campus, raising three children with her spouse, David. We're gonna get into all of that in a few moments, but first, Lucy, are you facing retirement with relief? or with trepidation? Definitely not trepidation. Um, mixed feelings, relief is part of them. The, the, the burden of responsibility in ministry can be a heavy one. And uh, I've been in ministry 41 years. So yes, relief is part of it, but also kind of wistfulness, nostalgia. I'm having to clear out a lot of stuff. I was going through some old files this morning and just the files of all the people I baptized, all the people whose funerals I took. So there's a lot of looking back with nostalgia and gratitude um, and wondering if I'm going to miss all this, this life I've, I've been living and working for so long. So yeah, it's a mix. Let's, let's go back. Um, so now 40 plus years, let's go back uh, to the UK and uh, picture yourself, I don't know, let's say 45 years ago. Uh, where were you 45 years ago? And then what led you to come to Canada? So I was 20, 45 years ago, if my math is correct, which <laughs> means I was heading into my final year of studying theology as an undergraduate at Durham University in the northeast of England. And I had gone to study theology because I knew I wanted to be ordained as a priest. But the Church of England was saying, well, you can't be, we'll let you study, but we're not going to ordain you because it wasn't accepting women. So at the age of 20, I was still very uh, optimistic that the church would change its mind just in time for me and that I would go off to seminary in England somewhere. Um, but that did not work out quite as I expected. I was allowed to train as a deaconess, which is considered not uh, holy orders it's a lay ministry um, I did not want to be a deaconess but I accepted that route and uh, went and studied at one of the Oxford colleges and uh, again hoped that by the time I got uh, qualified I the Church of England would be ready to accept me because why wouldn't it but again it didn't so I uh, worked as a deaconess in a in a parish in the northeast of England just north of Durham with my husband David and I had got married just before we went to seminary and uh, yeah we worked together he was uh, a curate and I was the deaconess in a large working class parish in England for three years uh, and the Church of England kept debating whether or not to go ahead with the ordination of women as deacons and priests and it kept saying no not yet no not yet so in 1983 we began looking at alternatives and essentially in other parts of the Anglican communion around the world, there were five countries, if I remember rightly, which ordained women. Hong Kong was one of them, New Zealand, the US and Canada, just four actually. Uh, and we thought, well, Hong Kong and New Zealand are too far away. We'd better see what North America has to offer. And long story, we had all kinds of false starts and uh, hopes that got dashed, but uh, ultimately we were invited to come to a parish in Montreal. So that's what we did in 1984. Let's uh, go back even further. Uh, so before, before you were at Durham, yeah. uh, where, where did you grow up in, in the UK? So I was born in Scotland, but my family moved to England when I was still quite young. So all through school, I was in uh, England, about an hour north of London, um, the home counties, they're called. And uh, I grew up in a tiny little village uh, you will never have heard of called Oving, 
in uh, Buckinghamshire and I went to school at the high school nearby in a town called Aylesbury. And um, when did you first get the inkling that you would want to be you would want to be a priest? When did, when did that when did that first happen? I was a teenager. I was very um, serious and pious and uh, my mother had been Methodist and then converted to Roman Catholicism in her late teens. And then in order to marry my dad, who was a Presbyterian, she became an Anglican when she was at medical school. They were both at medical school. But I knew she'd been a Roman Catholic and I was quite drawn to aspects of Roman Catholicism. This is when I'm 13, 14, right? I knew very little, but it seemed kind of a romantic thing. And uh, a friend of mine was Catholic and I occasionally went to mass. So I was looking seriously into becoming a Roman Catholic while one of my older sisters was being confirmed um, in the local parish church, the Anglican church. And I, my mother had always taken all five of us kids to church in the Anglican church. So after my brief flirtation with the idea of becoming a Roman Catholic, I thought, no, I'm going to get confirmed in this church where, where I, my family's been going for all these years. And there was a new parish priest, and he was just very... He was, must have been about in his mid-30s. He was just a great parish priest. I liked him. He prepared me for confirmation with one of my younger sisters. He took us seriously. He encouraged us. He treated us like, um, like people, not like kids. And I would, I would go to church and I'd hear him preach. Um, he was very sort of easy to get along with. He was pretty folksy in the pulpit. And I thought, I want to be just like him when I grow up. It was that simple and naive. I thought, I just want to be like him. And uh, so I became very um, regular there. I became a server and I joined the choir and he was very encouraging until the day he mentioned he didn't approve of the ordination of women. That was a bit of a... Oh, yeah, that's uh, a good breaker. Yeah. That was a bit of a problem. Uh, the, the pastoral relationship shifted a little bit. Yeah. But no, that's how it began. I, I just wanted to be like him. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives and give my life to God and serve in the church. It was very naive in a good way. You know, that, that innocent naivety that gets you started on a road before you know how tortuous and bumpy the path is going to be. Were you raised in a, in a pious family, like a very you know, regular church-going family? Um, what, did, what, did your, what did your family think about you wanting to be a, a priest did they think you were you know throwing it all away for for, for nothing or or did they yeah my father definitely thought I was throwing it all away he he was um a Scottish Presbyterian and and that means he was taught a very dour austere image of a judging punishing God and I think he believed in God, but did not like him and wanted nothing to do with him. And he really thought I was throwing my, my gifts away. He had all kinds of hopes for me to be a simultaneous translator at the United Nations because I was good at languages. Um, yeah, he was not happy at all. And I was not happy that he wasn't a believer. You know, that was that was hard for us. My mother was was very uh, devout and she would say a prayer with us when we all sat down for breakfast before my dad came downstairs. She would take us all to church um, and she was very encouraging and supportive of me. Yeah, she she was quietly very proud of me, I think, although she didn't make a big deal about it. How about your siblings? <laughs> they just thought I was the goody goody religious one who was no fun to be with and uh, I, I wasn't going to discos and parties and drinking and doing the things they were experimenting with I was I was a goody goody so they they, they uh, teased me a lot yeah so you 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 know you were resolute you you wanted to do this uh and you go off to Durham yeah uh and then and then you head off to seminary yeah I took a year in between um I went to uh, the discernment process about, you know, that, that all candidates for any kind of ministry in the church go through. And they said, you're still only 21, uh, do something else for a year and then come back, which was fine. Uh, and I wasn't sure whether I was going to do a PhD. My, my uh, university 
they call him a tutor, so the main professor. Um, he was convinced I should go into academia and do a PhD. And so it was a time of discerning for me. Um, I got a job. I ended up working waitressing in a hotel in Durham, which I hated, and then uh, switched to being a research assistant in the Department of Education, just running um, statistics through computers. Back in the day when you had to punch holes in, in a series of cards and walk up the street and deliver this enormous bag of cards to a huge computer and then they'd run yeah. off the data and yeah. So I did that for nine months. Um, then David and I got married and then, then we headed off to seminary. How did you meet David Howells? So he was another undergraduate. We were doing the same theology undergraduate degree at Durham. He had started off in physics and then had um, a religious experience and a sense of call to ministry. So he, having done first year physics, he then started again first year theology, which is when we met. And most theology students lived much closer to the um, theology department, right in the shadow of the cathedral there in the uh, um, religious colleges. David and I didn't, we didn't want to. And we lived a good 40 minute walk outside the uh, center of the city up a steep hill is so that because met, you didn't is that because you didn't want to be part of a fishbowl yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah so we met many times walking up and down that long uh steep hill with all our bags of books and got chatting and yeah just we were not like most of the women studying theology were going to teach at schools they were going to be religious knowledge and uh, teachers and most of the men were going to be ordained um so I, I was a bit of a misfit in some ways um didn't feel like i belonged to some and wasn't allowed in the boys club uh, david was a misfit because he was from a science background and he had long hair and uh, smoked roll-up cigarettes and <laughs> didn't fit the bill so in our funny misfitty way we got along with each other was it was, it was it tobacco in the uh, in the role yes it was yes it was <laughs> yes so you uh you uh you complete your education and yeah. you you do a little bit of work in 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 the pair in a parish in in the uk and you know things are not working out in the in the church of england in your favor doesn't look like they're going to be ordaining women to the priesthood. And uh, so you you start exploring other options. And uh, New Zealand is too far away. Hong Kong's not an option, also too far away. Did you look at the US? Yeah, we had an offer of a, a parish in Pasadena, California, which oh. looked very promising. We met uh, the rector. He, he um, which parish? Um, I don't remember the, the name of the parish offhand. Okay. But it didn't work out and he left the parish rather in a hurry so everything fell through but then in the year before we went to seminary david was working in the cathedral as a verger and a guide kind of a general dog's body but he would take tours of people around and one group was um uh clergy from north america on on a sort of sabbatical and they were touring around the great cathedrals of england and uh, he got chatting and said yeah we're looking for somewhere to uh, for Lucy to come so we can be ordained working together and one of them said hmm, that this could work and he got back to us followed up and that's the person who brought us to Montreal the priest in a, in a parish there and that that person was was Ken uh, Ken Genge and Genge yes. Bishop Ken Genge that's uh, right. now retired Bishop Ken Genge right. That's right yeah, yeah wonderful wonderful person yeah yeah and the remarkable thing about the parish that you went to uh, kind of a small world. My uh, my dad's family was long associated with that with that parish on the on the south shore of Montreal and Saint yeah. Lambert. Yeah, yeah, isn't that yeah. crazy? Yeah, it is. So you come to Canada. Had you ever been to Canada before? Never been outside of uh, Europe. I've never crossed the Atlantic. So what was the? It must have been a culture shock. <laughs> what was that like? If people speak you know English a little differently. They drive on the wrong side of the road. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, well, because, because it was Quebec, um, and this was after Bill 101, a lot of Anglophones had left that particular part of, of Montreal, the South Shore, it was much more Francophone than it had been. It felt to us like we were in France on a vacation, the weather was the same, we arrived in the summer, it was hot, it was dry, everybody was speaking French. We kept 
instead of referring to dollars, we kept referring to francs because it was so much like being on vacation in France. So it was just, wow, this is a different world. It's exciting. It's fun. There's skyscrapers on the horizon when you look across the St. Lawrence River to the, the city. And it was just this huge adventure. When did it stop becoming an adventure? Like, when did you really feel like you were settling in? And, and did, you get, did you get second thoughts? Like, what are we doing here? No. Um, the Bishop of Montreal said, get through your first winter and then see if you feel like this is for you. And then you can be ordained priest. So I was working for a year. We were settling in. It was great. We got two puppies. Uh, we had good friends developing, doing great work in the parish, work that we really enjoyed. I mean, um, then my ordination happened in the spring of 85. And then um, I became pregnant and we were expecting our first child. And that's when it really felt like, boy, we are miles away from home. You know, our, all the rest of our family, our parents, all our siblings are thousands of miles away. This is, yeah. this is big. Um, and they visited, but only a couple of times. No, maybe even just once. We were only in Montreal for two years. So it was when we left Montreal with this three-month-old baby and went to our very first parish that we were going to be co-rectors of. So that felt very grown up. Like we're not assistants anymore. We're not junior clergy. We're actually going to be running this church. And it was in Northern Ontario, Capus Casing. Uh, and we knew nobody. That's when I remember on the way up there thinking, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Let me, let me uh, stop you there and ask you, uh, why, why would you leave Montreal to go leave, leave Quebec and, and go to Ontario and, and not just, uh, you know, not just uh, Southern Ontario, but all the way up to Capus Casing? What, what uh, drew you all the way up there? It's, the, it's that same innocent naivety, you know, <laughs> we, uh, not knowing any better. We said to the bishop um, when it was time for us to think about where to go next, because the expectation was we'd just be two years in Montreal, uh, you know, serving our time, doing our curacy. We said to him, where are clergy needed? Where are you short of clergy? We felt that the Anglican Church of Canada had taken a chance on us and welcomed us and ordained me. And we wanted to, to give back. So we said, where are you short of clergy? Well, go wherever you, where, wherever you think. And he said, well, that would be the North. <laughs> so we got in touch with the Bishop of Moussonie, Caleb Lawrence, um, who welcomed us with open arms and said, yes, I have all kinds of needs here. One possibility was an indigenous community on James Bay, Wininji, and the other was campus casing. And he said, I think it might be a bit of a stretch and a culture shock to, to put you in an indigenous community right away. I suggest you go to Capus Casing. And there was an indigenous population there also, as well as some uh, post-internment um, Japanese Canadians. Uh, but he said, I think Capus Casing, you can manage there, and then let's see what happens. So we said, okay, off we go. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to Capus Casing. I've never been to Capus Casing, ever. Great little uh, place. Fantastic little place. I'm sure. Uh, describe So... Describe Capus Gasing, uh, at least as you remember it when you first arrived. I remember driving for 12 hours through mostly rocks and trees and yeah. rocks and trees and rocks and trees. And it's getting flatter and flatter. And, uh, you know, you go over the Great Canadian Shield. Um, there's no more rolling hills or, or farmland to speak of. The trees get more and more spindly as you get to the jack pine area um, and then suddenly you know it's, it's just one road and then the road goes from small community to small community and then campus casing is a classic little mill town pulp and paper so you smell it before you get to it um, it was built on a grand scale it was called the model city of the north and the heart of the city was a roundabout which are very unusual in canada at that time so a roundabout, which had parking on the inside of the circle and the outside, which made for a lot of confusion. Shops all the way around the campus casing circle and then um, houses built outwards from it, uh, a hospital, a very nice 
uh, mock Tudor hotel that the Queen stayed in once, and then the Anglican church. It was a new build in the 50s, so it's a modern looking building. And it was a, it was a prosperous little mill town when we arrived. It was great. And a lot of people like us would go north for a few years, professionals, so doctors, dentists, teachers. Uh, they might get extra um, pay because they were going to a remote community. So there was a rich kind of sense of community and community life. And people bonded and encouraged each other. And they said to us, it's a great place to have kids. It's a really safe, tight-knit community. So we went ahead and had two more kids. <laughs> How long were you in, in Kapuskasing? We were there for four and a half years. Yeah, four yeah. and a half years. Yeah. And so you, you've got three little little ones that are, uh, you know, in diapers, uh, maybe crawling, running around. Uh, yeah. How did you, and you're in team ministry with, with David. Yeah, we, it was one job that we shared. We split it between us. So and we, we've done that for years. Um, we did it in Montreal, we did it in Kapuskasing, we did it for the first few years in our next position. Um, so it was, uh, you know, when he was out in the church, I was home with the kids and vice versa. And we split it pretty much 50-50 after they were very little infants, you know, when they needed more of mom's physical presence for biological reasons. Um, but it, but it was good. We spelled each other off and uh, there was lots of things we could do together as well. You know, on a Sunday, we'd both be robed up and leading worship together while the kids were in Sunday school and nursery. So it worked really well. So this is uh, this is late 80s and That's right. yeah. Uh, yeah, late, late 80s. And yeah. uh, des describe the just the makeup of that of that congregation at that time in Kapuskasing. Where it was it? Uh, well attended were there families lots of kids um was it a, a pretty lively place yeah it was it was it wasn't a big church it could seat maybe 150 and i would say that there were, i don't remember exactly but there were probably 80 to 100 people coming there was um a good choir lots of kids because as i you know as i mentioned a lot of people would come north for a few years and they were usually at the start of their career all the folks working at the mill you know you have to be fairly fit. So lots of young families. Um, there was um, an indigenous uh, community there. They were Cree. Uh, most of the Cree folks live up on uh, James Bay, but uh, some had settled further, further south. And Kapuskasing had the biggest hospital uh, north of Timmins, so people would get flown down. So I learned, we learned a bit of Cree. There was some Cree, um, Anglican clergy in the diocese that we met and they taught us how to say a blessing in Cree and mm. uh, the Lord's Prayer. We would have fantastic deanery and diocesan gatherings. So that's the wider community as clergy and people. And the hymns would be sung bilingually, you know, a verse of English, a verse in Cree. Um, and I had one visit uh, to Wiminji, the indigenous, the Cree community that we didn't end up serving at, but I did go to um, a conference there and my daughter Kate was a little infant she was maybe two months old and the, the, the Cree women were just so helpful and kind to me was I sort of juggling being at the conference and breastfeeding this little baby and uh, they gave her these beautiful little white moccasins which I just found the other day when I was clearing through some stuff uh, so, so it was a little tiny taste in, in experiences like that of what it would have been like had we gone to a Cree village. Um, but it certainly shaped the whole diocese. The, the uh, Cree Anglicans in the diocese outnumbered the Anglo-Saxons. The other dynamic, which is a bit complicated, was the Francophone um, element, because the town had been very English, but it was becoming more and more Francophone because a lot of the mill workers were French speaking, but their kids would, would leave home, go off to university and not return. There was a, an exodus of, of the younger people. And so the English speakers tended to be moving away, retiring away, and the French speakers were staying. So it had been mm. predominantly English speaking. By the time we were there, it was more and more French speaking. And we, again, in our naivety thought, well, great, we'll offer some bilingual services. We'll offer some services in French. And that was met with 
huge hostility from some of the Anglophones in the congregation. There were some things going on, dynamics, racist dynamics going on under the surface that we did not understand at the time. Looking back on that, um, how, how serious were those dynamics in, in, in retrospect? They were serious in the extent that there was a feeling amongst some of the Anglophones that this model city of the North that they'd helped establish was declining and it, it wasn't the same as the city they knew. The mill was also in trouble by the time we left. It was not doing so well. There were lots of buyouts and closures of mills all around. So it was the dynamic, which we hear now in, in different contexts of a formerly privileged population who were at the top of the heap feeling under threat. And so people when they're under threat often react with hostility. And that's what we were beginning to see in a small way, not, not in huge overt ways, but it, it made it difficult at times, yeah. Did, did that at all play any role in, in why you left? No, no, I, I can honestly say it didn't. Uh, we left because the kids were getting older. Tom, our oldest, had started junior kindergarten. And we felt that we wanted to be in a place where we could settle for the long term so they could all go through school and we could really put roots down. We knew Capus Kaysen wasn't going to be a forever place. Um, it was so far away. You know, it's yeah. just the friends we'd made in Montreal, only a couple of them made the long trip up there. So we were looking at that point to settle um, in a community that we could raise the kids in and be for a decade or, or two. Yeah, right. so we were looking south. So you you end up in Guelph. Yes. And uh, you, you end up in Guelph and you yourself end up not in a parish at all. You end up at the University of Guelph as a, as a, as a chaplain. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about? So we actually both started in chaplaincy. Again, we were job sharing. Uh, we were not looking to go into uh, traditional parish ministry. We, we were looking for something a bit different. Um, and something, I think we were reacting a bit against the, um, that kind of traditional backlash. That's not rather a strong word, but you know, in Kappa's casing, people trying to put the brakes on change, whereas we were still young and uh, enthusiastic and we were embracing change. So we wanted to go to a, a ministry situation where people were exploring new ideas. People weren't fearful of, of um, changes. And so a, a university setting was of great interest to us. And we, we just saw a little ad in the National Church newspaper saying that an ecumenical campus minister was um, being hired for in Guelph. We didn't really know what that meant. So we wrote off and said, uh, what does that mean? Can you give us more information? And they said, oh, I just come and interview for the job. We, uh, we won't send you any information. Just come down and interview. So we thought, okay. So they paid for us to fly down and- uh, Did you bring the uh, kids? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yes, we did. That's a whole other story. They had uh, German measles or something. They were covered in rashes oh. and <laughs> oh, it was not, not happy. Anyway. We had a long conversation with the board <coughs> who explained to us what the ecumenical position was. It was funded by Anglican, United and Presbyterian funds. And we were to serve all those communities and, and any other uh, in the population, students as well as faculty and staff. And we said, well, we've got no qualifications. We've never been trained for anything like chaplaincy in that context. They said, that's okay, you'll do fine, you're young. Job sharing is great. We'll get uh, two for the price of one. <laughs> and they, they just really encouraged us to go for it. So we did. We drove our Honda Civic with a little um, utility trailer piled high with all our stuff on Boxing you, Day. You moved yourself. We mo there was a mover with our furniture, but we, we, we brought our um, surplus stuff in a little yeah. trailer. And we drove down on Boxing Day all the way from Capus Casing to Guelph in one go with three kids 
unforgettable journey and I'm surprised we didn't die but yeah and so the beginning of 1991 we started and for three years we job shared and then David decided to go back to parish ministry and I continued on in uh, campus ministry. Did the university um, uh, say to you when when uh, when David decided he's going to back out and go back into the parish did they say well wait a minute that's not what we uh, what we signed up here for we wanted both of you no no not really um it, it it turned out to be a good fit for me it wasn't such a good fit for him um plus the funding was quite precarious and the bishop said look it may become a single part-time job and we looked at each other and thought we, we can't survive on one part-time job so the bishop offered david um some options, one of which was a small village just outside of Guelph, Rockwood, uh, part-time. So we figured, okay, if we each have a part-time job, that, that's gonna be more manageable. And in actual fact, um, I managed to hustle up enough money to keep my position going more or less full-time. I usually went part-time over the summer semester, which was great. Uh, and David went gradually from part-time back up to full-time in, in two different parishes that he served. Now that was uh, clearly an adjustment, going from a little parish up in Kapuskasing to a, a, a fairly large university in, in Guelph in Southern Ontario into a chaplaincy role. How did you navigate that adjustment? It, it must have been a learning curve for at least the, the first couple of years. Yeah, it definitely was because you don't have a church base to start from, which has already got a gathered community and which meets every week and which expects this rhythm of parish life there's nothing you're starting from scratch so but we were part of a team there was a christian reformed uh, campus minister there was a, a jesuit one of the um jesuits in guelph was the roman catholic one um and then in the first couple of years um it evolved into more of a multi-faith team so we so we had colleagues and um you just tried all kinds of crazy things i had been doing a lot of reading around progressive theology, feminist theology, interfaith um, books and so on. So I was really keen to try these out in a way that it's it's not so easy in a in a mainstream single congregation. It was had, a great had you, had you already that. had you already been reading reading yeah. stuff uh, up in yeah. up and, and is that maybe what attracted you to to, to that kind of environment? Yeah, okay. that's right. Uh, it all began actually when I was in seminary in England because I went to an all male theological college seminary. I was only allowed because I was the wife of an ordinant and there were no other women at all. It was just men training to be priests, plus me <laughs> training to be a deaconess. Same, we did exact same courses, the exact same exams, but at the end they were ordained and I wasn't. Anyway. The one woman who came was because they had an exchange. They'd had an exchange for years with the um, a seminary in California, CDSP. Mm -hmm. And they'd always said one man had gone from Oxford and one man had come from California. But this year, the exchangee was a woman who was gonna be ordained in the US. So she was highly controversial. There were people who thought it was outrageous that this should be the exchange student for a year. And she was a strong feminist. She led the charge and I kind of followed in her wake because I wasn't such a threat because I was just going to be a little humble deaconess, right? But she started feeding me feminist theology books. And she said, you should read this, you should read this. And that's actually what got me started. So I've been you, quietly- you still, keep in, uh, you still keep in touch with her? No, we lost touch after a few years, uh, but, but uh, the, the ball had been set in motion. Yeah. So I'd been kind of quietly reading. I would take a day a week in the library in Montreal to, to read um, feminist theology and other kinds of progressive theology. So yeah, it, it, was, it, it had been feeding me personally and changing me personally. And it was, it was lovely. It was a breath of fresh air, actually, to be in a context at the University of Guelph where I could offer a workshop or a study group or um, a women's spirituality circle, which could actually explore this. And it, so it wasn't just me reading, reading a book rather secretly, you know, in, in brown paper almost, <laughs> brown paper cover. It, it was something I could, I could explore with other people. How did you uh, cultivate friendships and, and just working relationships with, with the chaplains of other faith traditions? 
that's a good question because we did become good friend colleagues with one another. There was a Hindu priest who was also an economics professor, Opie Dwabedi. Opie was very hospitable, had us to his house for some meals and uh, talked a lot about yoga as a, not just a physical exercise, but a spiritual practice. Uh, he invited me to his daughter's wedding. And I said, Opie, I'm so honored. What would I wear? And he said, all the women should be fully bedecked. So I thought, okay, I'm going to deck myself out. And so it, he was just, just a lovely, welcoming uh, person. Um, Z was the, the uh, nickname for the Muslim Imam. And Z, again, he, he had a secular job he'd retired from, and he was raised up by the Muslim community to be their Imam. Just a gen <clears throat> gentle, lovely man. And again, we got to know each other personally so and the, and the Jewish representative on that team was a psychology professor Michael Grand uh, he lived just down the road from us in Guelph and again in, we went to, into each other's homes so it was kind of grassroots household um, interfaith connections that formed so I'm, I'm wondering if the if the ground of your Christian faith if I can use that that metaphor, yeah. did that begin to to shift a little bit for you at, at Guelph, just uh, rubbing shoulders with with people of other faith traditions? Uh, what what happened there? I wouldn't say it began there, but certainly the ground was fertile there. It, it, mm -hmm. it was more fertile than in parish ministry. I felt, um, and yes, working as part of part of a multi faith team, we often had. Um, multi-faith events, conferences, seminars, and it became much more um, natural and obvious for me when we were addressing a topic to make sure that all those different voices were heard. And so, yeah, listening to them and uh, shifting my perspective sometimes, it just really helped me grow, I think, and for my own faith as a Christian, to, to broaden a lot, a lot more than it had been able to before. So it wasn't a, a night and day shift, like an aha moment. It was, it was, a, it was more of a sort of a blossoming and a blooming uh, because that was the environment that, that I was living and breathing in and working in. So you're, you're at Guelph for, for quite a number of years, 17, I think? 17, yeah. 17 yeah. years at, at Guelph in that role. Yes. As as, uh, as chaplain. Yeah. And then it, it comes to an end. Yeah. Uh, was that your decision that it came to an end? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, I had been seeing a new influx of undergrad students coming in for 17 years, and they were the age that my kids were. You know, the first years coming in were now the age of my own kids who were going off to university. And I thought, I'm getting too old for this game. I can't keep... I can't keep doing this because you build up community and then they graduate and they go and then you start all over again. And that that cycle, I was really beginning to miss the um, continuity and longevity of a parish when the community, it contains all ages and stages and they're there for the long haul compared to the universe where it's constantly changing. I was just getting getting weary with that. And at the same time, our kids, our youngest Ben, um, would have been going into grade 10, 11, grade 11, but instead he got a scholarship to Pearson College um, out in BC. So we thought, hmm, this is a good time for us to think about what's next. So Tom and Kate were off at university, Ben had gone to Pearson College, and I had two sisters who lived in BC by then. They had, for completely serendipitous reasons, also emigrated to Canada um, a decade or so after I had. Settled in BC, married, had kids. And I thought it'd be nice to go to BC for a while, see what all the fuss is about. Why does everybody say BC is so great? So we interviewed for a few uh, Anglican parishes. I was fearful because I thought, am I going to be able to fit back into the confines of an Anglican parish? Am I going to be yeah. able to wear that outfit again, you know? Yeah, you, you, you go from the parish to something so expansive yes. and inclusive as a university. Yeah. And, and then you, you've got to somehow find a way to, yeah. to get yourself 
yeah. back down into a into a, a smaller, yeah. smaller situation. But what had been really helpful was that because David had returned to parish ministry earlier than I had, on Sundays, typically I worshipped with him and sometimes preached in his church. And through the week I was on campus and his church was very well because of his leadership was very open to progressive ideas and really restored my faith in Christianity and Anglicanism as a, a viable option to be a voice for change and um, to be flexible and progressive in the world. At one point I thought maybe I'd moved too far to ever fit back, but it was really being connected with David's parish. When I wasn't in that leadership role, I was part of it, which, which gave me the confidence to think, okay, maybe I can thrive in parish ministry again. And so we gave it a try. We went, we went to BC to a little church just outside the city of Victoria um, and I loved it. There was something so good about being back in community of that of that kind. And yeah, it was it was very traditional, and we had some struggles together. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had no regrets. It, it was a great, and it was a total change from Guelph. Going to BC was it was just the change we needed. Let me let me just bring you back to Guelph. Yes, in uh, in your years as a as a chaplain in that in that multi faith environment. And you're raising three kids, you know, you got three teenagers at home yeah. and, and they're, they're growing up with, you know, their dad in a parish that's very kind of forward looking and, and uh, avant-garde and, and, and their moms uh, at the university doing all kinds of radical stuff. How do you think that that uh, has, has shaped your own children and, and their, their outlook on the world and, and their conceptions of ultimate reality? That is a great question, and I've never thought of it quite like that, but I think it's it's why they are such a, a curious-minded young adults now. They're all in their 30s now. Um, they are open to uh, the, the Christian path. As they, they respect that that's what we've embraced as their parents, but uh, they none of them have identified themselves at this point as uh, Christian or Anglican. Uh, I think they're citizens of, of the world in a sense. And so that means something different for each of them. But yeah, I think the expanded horizons they grew up with shaped them in such a way that they can step back into an Anglican church. They're going to be here at my last service, at least uh, a couple of them. Yeah. And they, I, that's a language they still know how to speak but they have very um, broad horizons and think and pursue their own spiritual path very much more broadly than, than I ever um, did as, as, at their age. And, and I'm sure that they, they don't all think the same either. They, no, they no, have no. to meet them <laughs> among themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's, that's yeah. true. So you, you, so, okay, so you leave Guelph, you're, you're, you're out in Victoria, uh, it's just the change that you need. Uh, you're, you're close to your sisters um, and, and Ben, who's finishing high school. And uh, Victoria doesn't, doesn't end up being a, a long-term uh, place for you to, to land. So no. yeah, no. What, what, uh, what happened there? David was restless. He never settled into BC. He said, I know it's beautiful, but I just, I'm not feeling it. And he was hankering to go back to Southern Ontario after the first year or so. Um, I, I would have stayed longer, but uh, other things were going on as well. Uh, the parish went through some serious conflict because the diocese was closing a lot of churches, lots of little churches. And although mine wasn't under threat of closure, two other neighboring ones were. And so we pitched the idea of team ministry that we, we'd help the other two churches stay afloat by developing a team ministry and sharing clergy, which was not an idea that was embraced by many of the parishioners at my church. They felt like it might be kind of drowning people, grabbing onto one one boat that isn't sinking yet and pulling it down too. Mm. So there was some serious conflict, which which made for an unhappy time. David, meanwhile, had started working part-time in the hospice in Victoria, and then they asked him to go full-time. So Again, he stepped back from being in the parish 
into chaplaincy. It's funny how history repeats itself. And uh, he became a full-time hospice chaplain. Um, And then after three and a half years, um, our other two kids were back. They'd gone to university in um, Nova Scotia and Ontario, respectively. They were not going to be living in BC. Ben had finished at Pearson College. He'd gone off to Dalhousie. So we were again thinking, where where do we want our center of gravity to be now that we're post kids? Uh, We're not going to follow them, but but where's our center of gravity? And it it wasn't in BC. You know, the people you raise your kids with tend to be your your closest lifelong friends, in my experience. And they were in in Guel. They were in Southern Ontario, people that you go through thick and thin. You know, your parents fall ill and die and your kids go through various crises in school. Those are the friendships which really count. So after... um, three years, we began to think, okay, this isn't our forever place either. David was certainly clear that it wasn't. Um, And so, yeah, we began looking looking around and uh, didn't want to go back to Guelph at that point. I was gonna ask you that. So so going back to Guelph wasn't really something- No, I think think it's hard to leave a, a, a city of that size and then come back and try and do something different in a different church. You can't go back to the same church. Mm-hmm. So Toronto was the obvious choice. And when people heard we were um, looking for opportunities, there were lots of invitations for us to consider this parish, that parish. So we thought, well, there's a lot of churches in Toronto. Let's go see what the bishop has on offer. So uh, <laughs> we came down we, uh, to the diocese and uh, the bishop had one idea for us that he really, really wanted us to do. It was a very challenging four church amalgamation in Scarborough. And meanwhile, we'd heard about St. Aidan's in the beach and uh, knew nothing about it, but uh, drove out to the beach and we thought, wow, this is this place for real? We didn't, we ne- we didn't know the beach at all. We'd never been to that part of the city. Yep. And uh, the bishop said, no, 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 no. I, I don't need you to go to St. Aidan's. I have someone else in mind. I want you to go to Scarborough. And uh, we were looking at job sharing again, Mm -hmm. uh, just one position. So we reported back to our kids. We said, no, St. Aidan's is gorgeous, but the bishop doesn't want us there. He wants us to go to do an amalgamation. So one of our kids said, cut him a deal. Tell him one of you will go and do the Scarborough amalgamation if the other can have a shot at St. Aidan's. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, the kind of thing a, a kid with no respect for a bishop would suggest. So we thought, well, what have we got to lose? So we got back to the bishop and said, here's, here's what we'd like to propose. He said, let me think about it for 24 hours. And he called us back and said, okay, you can interview for St. Aidan's and uh, talking to me. And uh, David was willing to do the amalgamation in Scarborough. No regrets. No regrets, <laughs> not yeah. at all. No, <laughs> it was, I mean, I, I don't believe God moves us around like chess pieces and has it all planned out, but uh, I think God's hand was in that, and uh, yeah, it, it, it was. It turned out to be just right. Yeah, and you've you've been at St. Aidan's for eleven years. Yeah, uh, 11, 11 fine years. Yeah. Uh, I've I've had the opportunity to work with you for almost four. Yeah, uh, which has been remarkable. Interrupted, of course, by by the pandemic. Yes, big interruption. Um, let me let me uh, go back a little bit. I guess this is maybe toward the the latter part of your time in in Guelph and you decided to write a book oh yes <laughs> so I, did. I don't know if, I don't know if many people who know you are are aware that Lucy Reed is a published author uh quite a fine book uh and uh, out of print now unfortunately yeah uh published by TNT Clark Press a press out of the UK uh but the title of this book is she changes everything that's the that's the title. You can look it up. But tell me about that title. Who is the she? What is the change? And what do you mean by everything? <laughs> so I had been reading feminist theology for years and making notes and writing my own thoughts for, literally for years. And at one point at Guelph, I had a sabbatical coming up and I thought, I would like to begin to try and get the material together for a book. But and I was invited to be a chaplain on a small island off the coast of New Hampshire 
mm. for a group of Unitarians, of all things. And they invited me to give a series of talks uh, at the beginning of every morning before they went into their programs. And this was all through a, a Unitarian friend at the university. And I said, well, I'm happy to do that. What, what, what topic would you like me to speak on? And they said, you can pick anything. So I thought, okay, this is my perfect chance. I'm gonna turn <laughs> five talks of these to these Unitarians into the first five chapters of the book. And I'm gonna to talk to them about why exploring the feminine face of God and using, for example, she instead of he for God all the time mm -hmm. makes a difference, why that matters. So that uh, forced me to organize my files and files and reams and reams of notes into five presentations, which became five chapters. And then I had the sabbatical, which gave me the time to um, make it more of a manuscript. Uh, and it took me another two years to actually finish the manuscript and then, and then another two to get it published. But so the she, what I mean by the title is, and I'll explain where the phrase comes from. Yep. If, you, if you explore what difference it makes to, to use feminine metaphors for God and sometimes pray with she, her language, it shifts a lot. It shifts the feel, it shifts um, the thinking, it shifts the focus. And it includes women's experience. And it's that's been there in, in the scriptures, in, in the tradition from the beginning, but it's never been highlighted um, for all kinds of reasons. Yes. So um, she changes everything is actually part of a Wiccan chant. She changes everything she touches and everything she touches changes, which um, at one, one of the crazy radical points in my uh, journey in chaplaincy, we'd invited a Wiccan to come and speak and do um, a workshop on campus. Uh, Starhawk is her name. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So Starhawk came to Guelph and uh, all kinds of crazy things uh, took place. And it was, it was, it was, Great, it was exciting. But I always loved the word, she changes everything she touches and everything she touches changes. Um, and it just fit for, for what I was trying to get at in my book, that if we can explore the feminine, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm looking at young and I'm looking at tradition and history and language, everything else shifts. So that, that was it. Publishers didn't quite get whether it was an academic book or a memoir. There's a lot of my personal story in it, a lot of my my own journey. It's um, kind of a bit of both. It, it is. It, it has is. academic footnotes, but it yep. has a whole lot of, of uh, first person <laughs> narrative. So yep. it took me a while to find a publisher who got that and one, but but it was uh, priced and published as an academic book. So not a big print run, uh, very expensive. It, it was not the bestseller I hoped it would be at 20 bucks. You know, it was a $60 paperback, which was yeah. crazy. So it didn't have the kind of shelf life that I had hoped, um, but it uh, circulated around Guelph and other places. And I had, I, I still do actually get emails from people who come across it in universities or, um, book clubs or something who say wow this book really changed the way I thought this was a real gift so so it's been it's been good to know that that it did make a difference that book was published what year oh my goodness 2004 I think okay yeah that, that sounds about right I, I can't yeah. remember when I, when I read it but that sounds that sounds I, about right yeah oh here's my copy right here I can check that but yeah I think it was 2004 and then the publishing company was bought out. It's at a time when a lot of um, publishing companies were 2005 okay. um, being gobbled up by, by big ones. So, yeah. Uh, so that's a little, a little less than, than 20 years ago. Uh, and, and I'm sure the ideas of the book were, were more or less in place probably 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. How have you, if at all, how have you shifted uh, since you wrote that book, since it was published, have you moved even further fr from from the argument of the book, or have you kind of uh, maybe backed it up a little bit and, and said, well, maybe I went a little little bit too far? Uh, neither of those things. What I would say is I'm I'm coming sort of full circle. So I needed to explore what for me felt like the whole missing half, the feminine side. 
I needed to explore that. And I, you know, I went exploring goddess worship mm. and women's spirituality circles and then brought all that together in the book. But then my next job was, okay, so where does the masculine, where is the healthy masculine? Who's Jesus oh. now? Like Jesus was a biological male, as far as we know. How do I reintegrate a healthy masculine, not a toxic patriarchal masculine, but a healthy one? So um, I trained in spiritual direction at the Hayden Institute, which focuses a lot on Jungian thought. And uh, this was, um, I started that in Guelph, continued when I was in Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, my reading and my thinking has sort of come around to try and integrate what does it look like to have a healthy masculine, a healthy feminine, and a, a really holistic faith. Um, so it, to me, I, if I ever write uh, a sequel or even a concluding chapter, it would be on that part of the journey, the last 10, 15 years of my thinking. I'm still figuring it out. When you're in parish ministry, and in my experience, it's just too busy. You don't have time yeah. to say, oh, I'm gonna write a book on the side. At least I haven't been able to find the time. I took a sabbatical and thought maybe I could start writing, but I was too tired. So if I do anything in, in retirement, um, before I get too busy with my gardening <laughs> and chilling out, I would like, seriously, I would like to write some more and to see if I can bring that full circle together. Well, I'll tell you what, I would read it. Because uh, <laughs> I read the first the first book and I, I would uh, easily read the second book. Uh, and I know that there are many others who would who would read it as well. So uh, yeah, I would encourage you, to, I would encourage you to, to try to map out some some time for yourself to, to tackle yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, my plan is to do nothing for the first six months and then to begin to look at, okay. Well, I was going to say after about the first month, you should dive right in. No, no, no. <laughs> I need six months to recover from uh, 41 years of ministry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, looking back, we're, we're, we're now uh, an hour in, so we're yeah. going to wrap it up momentarily here. Sure. Uh, but but looking, looking back over the last 40, 40 plus years, uh, what do you think? has been the biggest change uh, that has occurred in the Anglican Church? I, I, I guess I'm asking about the Anglican Church of Canada. I mean, that's such a hard question. When we left the Church of England and came to the Anglican Church of Canada, the huge change was that the Church of England is the church of the people, at least it was at the time, that's changed. And the Anglican Church was a relatively small Protestant denomination in a predominantly Roman Catholic country. There were more Roman Catholics in Canada uh, than Angl Anglicans. Is, uh, I've always been a small denomination. So that was a huge shift for us to wrap our heads around. Um, but certainly in my time since coming here, I've seen the Anglican Church Canada place in Canadian society shift further. Um, towards the margins, but I think in a good way, because I don't think being mainstream and cozying up to the powers that be is necessarily a good thing. Uh, I think we belong on the margins. I think that's where Jesus hung out. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we're supposed to be um, just echo chambers of, the, of the, the culture at large. So although a lot of people wring their hands about the decline in numbers, I think in actual fact, people who are still actively involved in this church of ours uh, are there because they're, they're opting in. It's feeding them. It's not just when you go to church on Sunday because that's what everybody does. You know, th those heydays when there, there were hundreds of kids in Sunday school, that was more about the church being the center of community. Those kids didn't continue going to church when they were adults. They didn't take their kids to church. Right. It was sort of a blip. So I, I think people are in church now because they have a reason to be. It's it's, it's intentional. Yes, it's intentional. That that's yeah. the one. It's not. It, we're we're losing. I think over the decades, uh, that kind of establishment culture yes. that was that was inherited from from England. That's right. We're and, not uh, the main culture anymore. I mean, right. we need to step back from that role. You know, when we when we impose that on others, and I'm thinking particularly of residential schools and our approach to Indigenous people, that was a disaster. So we we need to have a much more humble voice and a more 
humble posture. Looking forward, uh, as you as you you know uh, get into retirement, what 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 do you think is the biggest challenge facing the Anglican Church right now? I think um, not being sucked into the fear of losing place, you know, not being sucked into anxiety about how are we going to keep all our churches full, how are we going to keep them open. I think the challenge is to do a lot of letting go. Growth isn't about dollars and growth isn't about numbers in, in, in the Christian context, it's about depth. It's about um, ministry service. Uh, so I think the challenge is to be faithful to that and not get seduced by voices which say, we have to get back to the position we used to be in. We have to get back into our uh, strong place. I think that's how I would express mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to wrap it up by asking you. I've got I think I've got about ten questions. We'll, we'll call this rapid fire rapid fire questions here, and uh, okay. you can you can uh, try to answer these as quickly as you can and <laughs> briefly as you can. Okay. What is your favorite place in the beach to walk your dogs? It's just a little bit outside the beach, to be perfectly honest. I discovered huh. the Doris McCarthy Trail, which uh, you oh yeah, I know that yeah. Point. I love that because it's very quiet and uh, you feel as if you're completely away. I love the boardwalk here, but it's often pretty busy. So mm -hmm. the Doris McCarthy Trail, one of my favorite places. And of course, she was an artist associated with St. Aidan's for a long time. Yes she, yes, she was. Absolutely. Yes. Favorite beach eatery or restaurant? I love Viveta, just down the road from the church, and Ed's Real Scoop ice cream. Ah, okay. <laughs> Very good. When you're eating food, do you prefer sweet or savory? Depends on the time of the day <laughs> entirely. If it's after 9 p.m., sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Are you a night owl or a morning dove? Um, more night owl. Not extreme either way, but more night out, yeah. Okay. Your favorite music album album of all time? Um, oh, boy, that is a really tough one. Yeah, it is a tough one. It's well, you can give me a couple. A you, you can give me a couple. Uh, so I go, I go back to... Um, there's a Diana Ross album uh, that I love. I think it's called Love Child. Very early Diana Ross. Um, okay. And uh, Joan Armour Trading. I'm a big Joan Armour Trading fan. I'm blanking on the name of the album in particular. But this is music back in back in my heyday in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Simon Garfunkel. That's the kind of kid I am. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I asked my uh, my wife that that question right now, and she said she quoted a, a an album by the Police. And then she oh, said, no, yeah. no, no, wait a minute. No, I, I take that back. It's it's Paul Simon Graceland. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hip hop or opera? What would you go to see? Uh, neither. <laughs> no, having said that, I've got tickets to the Magic Flute this week. Uh, I've always wanted to see the Magic Flute. So if, if it's not too Brunhilderish opera, I would say opera. Hip hop is a closed book to me. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, most significant book you've read in the last year? In the last year? Yeah. Um, it would be on my shelf behind me. It would be Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Very good. Yeah, very fine book. Favorite theologian of all time, past, present, uh, whatever? I'm going to go with Marcus Borg. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very good. Very influential on me, yeah. Do you have a favorite book of his? I think the one I lend to most people is probably Meeting Jesus Again mm -hmm. for the First Time. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, very well-known book. Furthest place you have ever traveled from, from uh, where you've lived? 
that would be India. When our son Ben was living there, we went to visit him. So we were in Mumbai and then we traveled around and went further south and over to Goa. So yeah, India by a long shot. I haven't done much international travel. The most desired place that you would like to go that you haven't been to yet? I used to have a long list, but ethically, I think we shouldn't be flying for fun. <laughs> so yeah. that rules that out. Yep. Um, but emotionally, I um, I love Europe, France and Italy, particularly. but I've never been to Spain. I would love to go to Barcelona and uh, explore some parts of Spain, maybe the very end of the, uh, the Great Pilgrimage. Uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, nice. What's next for Lucy Reed? We know you're. We know you're. Uh, you're going to be retired in a couple of weeks, and you're going to be moving back to Guelph. You've, yeah. Uh, bought a nice little. You call it a cottage, <laughs> in the city. Yeah. Um, you're going to be settling there. Uh, you're going to take some time just to, you know, catch your breath over the next few months. Um, what's next over the next? I guess the next couple of years. You probably want to maybe think about writing that book. But any anything else that you've got planned? Yeah, I do. I mean, in, in, in September, we're going back to Scotland and we're exploring the Outer Hebrides. So some people will know that David and I walked across uh, from the northeast coast of England to the northwest, um, the uh, Inner Hebrides uh, on a sabbatical a few years ago. So we're going back, uh, not doing so much walking, we'll do a bit more <laughs> driving in the car, but that's uh, the first big adventure. But after that, I just want to settle back into the community, pick up the threads of the relationships, um, the friendships we had, enjoy having two of our adult kids who now live there also. I just want to sort of knit the fabric of, of a retired life and try it on for size. I don't have big ambitions. I'm gonna take up gardening in a more serious way. <laughs> Um, but that's it, really. I'm going to see what unfolds from there and just be, be really open to that. Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> My time will eventually come. It will. <laughs> Not for a few years. Well, thank you for, for giving me what's been more than an hour. I said it was going to be an hour, but it ended up being a little more than an hour. Uh, you're going to be missed around the beach. I, I'm, I'm going to miss you, but uh, thank you for joining me on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. All right.